Good evening. I hope you've had a great day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. I'm Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a good night's sleep with public domain short stories just for you. Links to all the stories can be found at the show notes at bedtimewithbvj.com. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Tonight's story, One Summer Night by Ambrose Beers. The fact that Henry Armstrong was buried did not seem to him to prove that he was dead. He had always been a hard man to convince. That he really was buried, the testimony of his senses compelled him to admit. His posture, flat upon his back, with his hands crossed upon his stomach, and tied with something that he easily broke without profitably altering the situation. The strict confinement of his entire person, the black darkness and profound silence, made a body of evidence impossible to controvert and be accepted. He accepted it without cavil. But dead? No, he was only very, very ill. He had, withal, the invalid's apathy, and did not greatly concern himself about the uncommon fate that had been allotted to him. No philosopher was he, just a plain, commonplace person, gifted, for the time being, with a pathological indifference. The organ that he feared consequences with was torpid. So, with no particular apprehension for his immediate future, he fell asleep, and all was peace with Henry Armstrong. But something was going on overhead. It was a dark summer night, shot through with infrequent shimmers of lightning silently firing a cloud, lying low in the west and portending a storm. These brief, stammering illuminations brought out with ghastly distinctness the monuments and headstones of the cemetery and seemed to set them dancing. It was not a night in which any credible witness was likely to be straying about a cemetery, so the three men who were there, digging into the grave of Henry Armstrong, felt reasonably secure. Two of them were young students from a medical college a few miles away. The third was a gigantic man known as Jess. For many years, Jess had been employed about the cemetery as a man of all work, and it was his favorite pleasantry that he knew every soul in the place. From the nature of what he was now doing, it was inferable that the place was not so populous as its register may have shown it to be. Outside the wall, at the part of the grounds farthest from the public road, were a horse and a light wagon, waiting. The work of excavation was not difficult. The earth with which the grave had been loosely filled a few hours before offered little resistance and was soon thrown out. Removal of the casket from its box was less easy, but it was taken out, for it was a prerequisite of Jess, who carefully unscrewed the cover and laid it aside, exposing the body in black trousers and white shirt. At that instant, the air sprang to flame. A crackling shock of thunder shook the stunned world, and Henry Armstrong tranquilly sat up. With inarticulate cries, the men fled in terror, each in a different direction. For nothing on earth could two of them have been persuaded to return. But Jess was of another breed. In the gray of the morning, the two students, pallid and haggard from anxiety, 
and with the terror of their adventure still beating tumultuously in their blood, met at the medical college. You saw it, cried one. God, yes, what are we to do? They went around to the rear of the building, where they saw a horse attached to a light wagon, hitched to a gatepost near the door of the dissecting room. Mechanically, they entered the room. On a bench, in the obscurity, sat Jess. He rose, grinning. I'm waiting for my pay, he said. Stretched naked on a long table lay the body of Henry Armstrong, the head defiled with blood and clay from a blow with a spade. Unbelievable. Some men are dedicated to their work. If you find yourself dedicated to your work, you might find employment with LinkedIn. Enter BVJ in the promo code and it would do absolutely nothing because I don't think they have one. And this is not a sponsored read. But we have more stories dealing with the night. Our next story, The Night Came Slowly by Kate Chopin. I am losing my interest in human beings, in the significance of their lives and their actions. Someone has said it is better to study one man than ten books. I want neither books nor men. They make me suffer. Can one of them talk to me like the night, the summer night, like the stars and the caressing wind? The night came slowly, softly, as I lay out there under the maple tree. It came creeping, creeping stealthily out of the valley, thinking I did not notice. And the outlines of trees and foliage nearby blended in one black mass, and the night came stealing out from them, too, and from the east and west, until the only light was in the sky, filtering through the maple leaves and a star looking down through every cranny. The night is solemn, and it means mystery. Human shapes flitted by like intangible things. Some stole up like little mice to peep at me. I did not mind. My whole being was abandoned to the soothing and penetrating charm of the night. The katydids began their slumber song. They are at it yet. How wise they are. They do not chatter like people. They tell me only, sleep, sleep, sleep. The wind rippled the maple leaves like little warm love thrills. Why do fools cumber the earth? It was a man's voice that broke the necromancer's spell. A man came today with his Bible class. He is detestable with his red cheeks and bald eyes and coarse manner and speech. What does he know of Christ? Shall I ask a young fool who was born yesterday and will die tomorrow to tell me things of Christ? I would rather ask the stars. They have seen him. Right there is someone who really loves nature more than they do the people who experience nature. But is that the stuff of dreams? Let's find out in our final story. The Dreamer by H. H. Monroe. It was the season of sales. The August establishment of Walpergs and Nettlepink had lowered its prices for an entire week as a concession to trade observances. 
much as an archduchess might protestingly contract an attack of influenza for the unsatisfactory reason that influenza was locally prevalent. Adela Champagne, who considered herself in some measures superior to the allurements of an ordinary bargain sale, made a point of attending the reduction week at Walberg's and Nettlepink's. I'm not a bargain hunter, she said, but I like to go where bargains are, which showed that beneath her surface strength of character there flowed a gracious undercurrent of human weakness. With a view to providing herself with a male escort, Mrs. Shenping had invited her youngest nephew to accompany her on the first day of the shopping expedition, throwing in the additional allurement of a cinematograph theater and the prospect of light refreshment. As Cyprian was not yet 18, she hoped he might not have reached that stage in masculine development when parcel carrying is looked on as a thing abhorrent. Meet me just outside the floral department, she wrote to him and don't be a moment later than eleven. Cyprian was a boy who carried with him through early life the wondering look of a dreamer, the eyes of one who sees things that are not visible to ordinary mortals, and invests the commonplace things of this world with qualities unsuspected by plainer folk, the eyes of a poet or house agent. He was quietly dressed, that sartorial quietude which frequently accompanies early adolescence, and is usually attributed by novel writers to the influence of a widowed mother. His hair was brushed back in a smoothness as of ribbon seaweed and seamed with a narrow furrow that scarcely aimed at being a parting. His aunt particularly noticed this item of his toilet when they met at the appointed rendezvous, because he was standing waiting for her, bareheaded. "'Where is your hat?' she asked. "'I didn't bring one with me,' he replied." Adela Shemping was slightly scandalized. "'You are not going to be what they call a nut, are you?' she inquired with some anxiety, partly with the idea that a nut would be an extravagance which her sister's small household would scarcely be justified in incurring, partly, perhaps, with the instinctive apprehension that a nut, even in its embryo stage, would refuse to carry parcels.' Cyprian looked at her with his wondering, dreamy eyes. I didn't bring a hat, he said, because it is such a nuisance when one is shopping. I mean, it is so awkward if one meets anyone one knows and has to take one's hat off when one's hands are full of parcels. If one hasn't got a hat on, one can't take it off. Mrs. Jimping sighed with great relief. Her worst fear had been laid at rest. It is more orthodox to wear a hat, she observed, and then turned her attention briskly to the business in hand. We will go first to the table linen counter, she said, leading the way in that direction. I should like to look at some napkins. The wondering look deepened in Cyprian's eyes as he followed his aunt. He belonged to a generation that is supposed to be over-fond of the role of mere spectator, but looking at napkins that one did not mean to buy was a pleasure beyond his comprehension. Mrs. Shemping held one or two napkins up to the light and stared fixedly at them, as though she half expected to find some revolutionary cipher written on them in scarcely visible ink. Then she suddenly broke away in the direction of the glassware department, 
Millicent asked me to get her a couple of decanters if they were any going really cheap, she explained on the way. And I really do want a salad bowl. I can come back to the napkins later on. She handled and scrutinized a large number of decanters. <clears throat> she handled and scrutinized a large number of decanters and a large series of salad bowls, and finally bought seven chrysanthemum vases. And finally bought seven chrysanthemum vases. No one uses that kind of vase nowadays, she informed Cyprian. But they will do for presents next Christmas. Two sunshades that were marked down to a price that Mrs. Shemping considered absurdly cheap were added to her purchases. One of them will do for Ruth Colson. She's going out to the Malay States, and a sunshade will always be useful there. And I must get her some thin writing paper. It takes up no room in one's baggage. Mrs. Shemping bought stacks of writing paper. It was so cheap, and it went so flat in a trunk or portmanteau. She also bought a few envelopes. Envelopes somehow seemed rather an extravagance compared with notepaper. Do you think Ruth will like blue or gray paper, she asked Cyprian. Gray, said Cyprian, who had never met the lady in question. Have you any mauve notepaper of this quality, Adela asked of the assistant. We haven't any mauve, said the assistant, but we've two shades of green and a darker shade of gray. Mrs. Shemping inspected the greens and the darker gray and chose the blue. Now we can have some lunch, she said. Cyprian behaved in an exemplary fashion in the refreshment department and cheerfully accepted a fish cake and a mince pie and a small cup of coffee as adequate restoratives after two hours of concentrated shopping. He was adamant, however, in resisting his aunt's suggestion that a hat should be bought for him at the counter where the men's headwear was being disposed of at temptingly reduced prices. I've got as many hats as I want at home, he said. And besides, it rumples one's hair so trying them on. Perhaps he was going to develop into a nut after all. It was a disquieting symptom that he left all the parcels in charge of the cloakroom attendant. We shall be getting more parcels presently, he said, so we need not collect these until we have finished our shopping. His aunt was doubtfully appeased. Some of the pleasure and excitement of a shopping expedition seemed to evaporate when one was deprived of immediate personal contact with one's purchases. I'm going to look at those napkins again, she said, as she descended the stairs to the ground floor. You need not come, she added, as the dreaming look in the boy's eyes changed for a moment into one of mute protest. You can meet me afterwards in the cutlery department. I've just remembered that I haven't a corkscrew in the house that can be depended on. Cyprian was not to be found in the cutlery department when his aunt in due course arrived there, but in the crush and bustle of anxious shoppers and busy attendants, it was an easy matter to miss anyone. It was in the leather goods department some quarter of an hour later that Adela Champagne caught sight of her nephew, separated from her by a rampant of suitcases and portmanteau and hemmed in by the jostling crush of human beings that now invaded every corner of the great shopping emporium. 
She was just in time to witness a pardonable but rather embarrassing mistake on the part of a lady who had wriggled her way with unstable determination toward the bareheaded Cyprian and was now breathlessly demanding the sale price of a handbag which had taken her fancy. There now, exclaimed Adela to herself, she takes him for one of the shop assistants. Because he hasn't got a hat on, I wonder it hasn't happened before. Perhaps it had. Cyprian, at any rate, seemed neither startled nor embarrassed by the error into which the good lady had fallen. Examining the ticket on the bag, he announced in a clear, dispassionate voice, Black seal, 34 shillings, marked down to 28. As a matter of fact, we are clearing them out at a special reduction price of 26 shillings. They are going off rather fast. I'll take it, said the lady, eagerly digging some coins out of her purse. Will you take it as it is, asked Cyprian. It will be a matter of a few minutes to get it wrapped up. There is such a rush. Never mind, I'll take it as it is, said the purchaser, clutching her treasure and counting the money into Cyprian's palm. Several kind strangers helped Adela into the open air. It's the crush and the heat, said one sympathizer to another. It's enough to turn anyone giddy. When she next came across Cyprian, he was standing in the crowd that pushed and jostled around the counters of the book department. The dream look was deeper than ever in his eyes. He had just sold two books of devotion to an elderly canon. You know, they say if you are living your dream, you'll never work a day in your life. Perhaps that was what Cyprian was doing. Even at the department store, didn't know it. It's about that time to get all kinds of great deals. They literally have everything from A to Z. Enter BBJ in the promo code and it will do absolutely nothing for this is not a sponsored read. I would like to remind you that we are always on the hunt for great stories like these to present to you. You can send your story suggestions right here, bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash bvjbedtime. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs>